Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts. Well, it's not really an episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts this time because I've once again teamed up with John Potter and the team from the Lib Dem Pod for another of our pilot live shows. This time we had Paul Tyler and Wendy Chamberlain on talking about electoral reform. So over to John and hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome everyone. I see we've got some of us uh, have joined. Thank you very much uh, for coming on um, and to this live podcast. Obviously, some people will be watching on the Facebook page as well. Uh, so we'll be adding more people as people turn up because they, they usually kind of drip feed in over the first uh, few minutes. Um, so let me just introduce myself. My name is John Potter. I am a counsellor uh, in Preston. I'm the group leader in Preston and for my sins I'm also a triple-hatted councillor for Lancashire and a parish as well. I am the host of the Lib Dem podcast. Alongside me is the host of the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast as well as party president Mark Pack. Hello Mark, how are you doing today? Hi, nice to see you again John and nice to see that you managed to hold on and get re-elected last week so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Uh, and joining us today on our special panel, we have Lord Paul Tyler, who is here going to talk about all things to do with constitutional reform. Uh, hello, Paul. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. And again, congratulations to you and anybody else on, on this call who's just been elected. Yes. And all those who have, obviously, some people who got... Um, narrowly not elected as well obviously so elections are always a very tough time particularly in these circumstances so whatever you're doing i hope you've you've relaxed i'm able to recharge your batteries some point and of course join us again on the podcast who's always a pleasure to have her is uh wendy chamberlain the mp for northeast fife and our parliamentary spokesman on this so welcome to, again wendy i hope you're well uh, yeah, I'm well, thank you. I'm actually not the Constitutional Affairs spokesperson. I was Alistair. It has been since last September. Oh, but I'm clearly, sorry. obviously, we did such sterling work last year that uh, I've now become the president of Lib Dem for Electoral Reform. So I'm clearly continuing this uh, that this topic. It's one that I continue to, to be interested in very passionately. And obviously with elections in Scotland last week, lots and lots, I think, to talk about, about the different voting systems. Absolutely. And I do apologise. That's I, all right. I, I, we'll accept your credentials, though. I think you, 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 you're good enough to stay on, I, I think. think. Scotland, Wales, DWP and Chief Whip. I mean, you, you know, I, I cover as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Wendy, why don't we start with you? Sue? So, let, I mean, an obvious question is why is electoral reform important anyway? Well, because I think for me, it comes it comes fundamentally into our democracy um, and the importance of our democracy. We throw that word around quite a lot. But what do we mean by that? And that is, um, you know, in some ways, governing uh, with the consent of the population. And the way that we obtain that consent is through um, is through people voting um, for the, the parties. And in terms of electoral reform, um, I think when we look at the first past the post system in Westminster, um, in particular, as well as data say first past the post elsewhere, we think about the MS systems in Scotland and Wales, a big chunk of those are, are first past the post, that that kind of winner takes all mentality, that more adversarial form that our politics is taking, um, is potentially not very helpful for some of the really um, complex um long strategic issues that that we need to be be dealing with i was on the app 
ESG for future generations earlier this week with um, uh, Nobel laureate econo uh, economist uh, Professor uh, Angus Deaton. And you know, you're talking about climate change. You're talking about um, you know long term. What do we mean by economic growth, etc.? And these are huge topics where actually a degree of consensus is required to move forward. And so the adversarial nature of our politics just isn't helped by that at all. And on that point, um, I wonder, uh, Paul, do you, is there anything you want to explore? Because obviously, before we get into the, the the topics of what kind of PR, do you want to build on anything Wendy's just said about why it's important? Yes, please, because I think we're in danger, some of us who are really interested in this, in getting into the methods before we actually have thought about what are the outcomes that we want. And Wendy is absolutely right. We should be looking at this from the point of view of the system, the elector not worrying about just what system is going to be best for which party and so on. I mean, the fact is that first past the post cheats the elector. Last Thursday, electors in uh, England for local authorities were effectively being cheated. Less than half were going to have any impact on the result. And the contrast between that and what is now already well established in Scotland, and Wendy can talk about this obviously with even more authority, but for three rounds now, and there'll be another next year, the electors in local authorities in Scotland have a 95% chance of affecting the outcome, of actually having an impact, making their vote count. And that is such a big difference now that the system that we're suffering in England is really one that does down cheat the elector. Wales is moving in the right direction, thank goodness and they will be able to do something much better in future. But it's Scotland that's leading the way. And again, of course, it was the Liberal Democrats in government, in the coalition, in Scotland, that managed to achieve this all those years ago. Mark, would you like to add further on this on the importance of UCI as, as the party president? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to slip into talking about how we need to get PR and, and forget, particularly if you're you know, someone who lives in England, and I think we've got really well established you know, for quite a long time now, PR systems in many bits of the UK, um, you know, in Scotland for both Scottish Parliament and local government, in Wales for the Senate, and there's now a sort of legislative route map for, for local government in Northern Ireland, you know, at, at multiple different levels and, and a little bit of a smattering forms um, in England. But I think one of the key challenges, as, as Paul rightly says, is we need to think about what electoral reform does for the voter. But the other is that we need to think about how do we actually secure electoral reform for Westminster? And I think the difficulty there is, I mean, in a way, there are two lessons, one from 2011 and one from 2019. The 2019 lesson is saying, hey, there's this thing that we want, and we're going to get elected as a majority party, the Lib Dem leader is going to be prime minister, and that's is sadly at the moment not the most credible of pitches. Route to electoral reform for the House of Commons is going to involve support in some form from MPs of other parties. And I think the other lesson, which is the one from the 2011 AV referendum, lots of things that went wrong with that, you know, re referendum campaign. But one of them is that a lot of voters take their cues from the politicians of their favourite party. So a lot the voters who might have voted for electoral reform in 2011 took their cue from MPs who were actively and vehemently anti-electoral reform and therefore voted against it. And so we do need to find a route to get a big chunk of MPs from another party for reform, which at the moment, frankly, looks more like 
you know, paper. So, so I think Paul is absolutely right that we need to focus on what it does for the voter. But in order to get there, we also need to think about how do we get one of the other parties, most likely Labour, to be who they are in a in a way that really delivers. And that I'm getting a bit someone talking in the background, which I don't know who that is, but uh, I've muted most of you. But um, that's it. I'm sure we'll come back to the point of where of how likely any sort of deal with Labour could possibly be, because I think some people would say that is uh, Labour haven't shown any inclination yet. But I suppose we'll wait and see. Now that certain vast areas of the country don't seem to be heading towards Labour, I wonder if that will change their thinking. But, Paul, should we go actually on to, does it matter what kind of PR we get? Are we, I mean, is it very important? Would we accept anything as an improvement on first uh, past the post? Or is it, should we always shoot for the stars, go for STV, stick to our guns again? And we've got a few thumbs up there from the audience. But is, how important is that for you? It is important, not least because, of course, we can be misrepresented in what we're actually seeking. It was a, the absurdity of the uh, AV uh, referendum that nobody was in favour of that, but it actually really came to it because it wasn't in our manifesto, it wasn't obviously in the Conservatives' manifesto, it was in the Labour manifesto, but um, not for the first time, they backed off as soon as it was a realistic prospect. But it's not PR. It doesn't necessarily improve the representation of the views of the electorate in Parliament. And therefore, it was a, a misnomer, if you like, but it was certainly a mistaken opportunity and one that we will have quoted back to us, I'm afraid, still, because people don't understand that. But the systems that we have already in place in the country are modest ones, except single transferable vote with local elections, which is, as I say, well established in Scotland. The other methods, I think, are very fascinating to hear what Mark, who's a great number cruncher, can tell us about that, and Wendy from direct experience in Scotland. I, I find that the, the systems that are used for Holyrood and for the Senate in Wales, I find them a little bit less than satisfactory, but for God's sake, don't let's get into the position of turning down improvements because it isn't perfect. I've spent an awful lot of time on this issue over the years, and I love it when people say, oh, God, that's the thin end, the thin end of the wedge. I'd love to be the thin end of a wedge on this issue. Anything that moves us away from the absurdities of first past the post is an improvement. And that's why, of course, it is really, I think, an absurdity, a stinking, if you like, absurdity, that the present government is pretending to improve the integrity of the electoral system when one of its proposals is to go back to first past the post for the police and crime commissioner elections that we've just been going through and for the metropolitan mayoral elections that we've just had in England. Because the, the present system is by no means satisfactory but it, for God's sake, it's a lot better than the winner takes all on a minority vote, which is the first past the post system. So to slip back from where we are may be something that the Conservatives are in favour of, precisely because it is less fair to the elector, to the voter, but it does them, uh, unfortunately, does them good. 
Yeah. Can I come in on 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 AMS in in Scotland and Wales now? Um, I, I've I've said before, you know, two things for me. You know, how do we demonstrate the electoral reform is a positive difference on people's lives, and second of all, you know, let's not get hung up. Anything's got to be better than first past the post. But I think what we have to remember about AMS is that uh, it's not a proportional system; it's a compensatory system, yeah. and certainly once we bring in a big issue like the constitution as we've seen in Scotland, then all the talk that we've had in Scotland before the election campaign about tactical voting, anytime we say tactical voting, that's a failure of the system, or um, or super majorities, et cetera. Um, it, it suggests to me that uh, you know it's it's not a, a fair system. So um, you know, a good example is probably my husband and I, so I've, you know, I'm, I'm quite open about this. My husband's a member of the SNP. Um, so I gave both my votes to Liberal Democrats. Um, I don't live in a Liberal Democrat uh, constituency in the Scottish Parliament. Um, and on the list, we failed in Mid-Scotland and Fife to secure a seat. So I have no rep representation based on my vote. My husband, I'm pretty sure, voted SNP um, 1 and Green 2. So he has an SNP MSP in his constituency and he has a green MSP on the list in the in the wider area as well. So he has double representation. And that's largely because the Green Party don't stand in constituencies in Scotland and there is tactical voting on their list vote because they're a pro-independence party. So, you know, the compensatory elements of the AMS system fail when you don't have parties standing on both the constituency and and the list because the idea is supposed to be that the constituency first past the post element and um, you have your winner takes all on that but the other party's vote is then represented in the list vote so there clearly have been some challenges there and and I suppose just reflecting on my lifetime as a voter um you know I one of my first votes was for the Scottish Parliament and the formation of it um, in, my, in my late teens is that the you know the dynamics the the sort of rainbow parliament of the early days of the Scottish Parliament have gotten you know the smaller parties that had representation and actually what we've ended up with last week is Conservatives, Labour, Lib Dems, SNP Greens, only five parties uh, represented um, and let's not kid ourselves that's because of the constitutional issue that has uh, that has driven driven you know binary, binary decision making uh, by voters so um yeah I'm I'm less keen on AMS than, than I used to be and and my second point just in terms of the Liberal Democrats is the fact that um you know, those of you who've paid attention, we obviously lost one seat in Scotland last week. We retained all our constituency seats. We're actually only, our MSPs only represent constituencies. We had huge majorities in those constituencies. Alex Cole Hamilton secured the highest number of votes for any MSP ever. So he'll be even more insufferable than usual. Um, but, <laughs> but um, you know, what that also demonstrates is the Westminster system drives us as a smaller party to focus on our good areas. Um, and therefore, then, when we then come into contact with a more proportional system or a better system, which which AMS is, um, it's then very difficult for us to, um, you know, to, to do something with that regional vote. We had people working across Scotland um, and, you know, tactical and split voting definitely did for us on the list, despite those fantastic results in the constituency, which is uh, very, very sad because, you know, we had some great, great candidates. And I wonder, Mark, um... It, this is a debate that goes on in Lib Dem circles is whether you let the, the best be the enemy of good or better, depending on which uh, turn of phrase you want to use. But because you know, because the Tories are trying to row back on the the, the um, 
supplementary vote that happens in mayoralities, etc. And actually, we saw that in the elections just gone, how Labour didn't seem to do as bad in areas where it wasn't just first past was they were able to win say the west yorkshire morality and things like that which they probably wouldn't have under a first past the post so what how do how do you want to navigate the party through that it's quite difficult because in some ways you're going to say look people are going to say look you've got to be realistic we've got to change any way to change the system we've got to take but other but other people will just say well av's still rubbish it's just a little bit less rubbish Oh, you're on mute, Mark. Sorry. Uh, sorry, amateur error there. Um, I mean, Wendy's point about how people can game the system, and you know, I, I don't object to, in a way, the Greens gaming the system in, in Scotland because that's what the law allows. So, you know, we always look for our own competitive advantage. But, but the, the fact that the Greens have been so successful at gaming the system by only standing on, on ballots, I think, is a reminder that of what virtues of STD that it's possible to try and game the system but it is really hard and the chances of it being counterproductive are quite high the really good thing about stv is that basically you can only game the system and work out how you should have tactically voted in hindsight that is a major safeguard but that said you know if we were to wake up tomorrow and there was a hung parliament and labor were offering to extend the scottish electoral system to westminster i wouldn't I wouldn't have too many qualms about thinking before thinking, yes, please. And there are definitely details that need to be got right, because actually it's possible to have a Scottish type system, but where you only get to be on the list if you're also standing in the constituencies. There are definitely details to get right. But, but for me, this is the really frustrating thing about securing electoral reform for Westminster, is that until the glory day arrives, when we're credibly campaigning to have a Lib Dem Prime Minister and a Lib Dem majority, it's actually so dependent on what Labour's willing to do. And that is really frustrating because Labour's track record on this is, has just always been so poor when it comes to the crunch on electoral reform for Westminster. So in, in, in answer, to, direct answer to your question, I think the way we have to navigate it is between our, our frustrations over Labour's past letdowns on this issue with the degree of realism that Labour MPs are probably the route to this. And if we have to flex a bit to get them on board, then fine, as Paul says, flexing as much as we did with the AV referendum, neither gave us a good option nor got them on board. So there's obviously a lesson there about not being too, too flexible. Yeah, and we've actually had a comment on the Facebook, on people following us on Facebook, just saying, you know, 214 local, local Labour parties have now said they would be in favour of changing it. Maybe that might be just necessity to think, well, how are we supposed to get back into power without Scotland, without huge areas of the North? What? How can they breach that thing? I also want to point out that um, due to the technology, my, uh, my Northern accent has been disgracefully misrepresented in the automatic subtitles, where Wendy Chamberlain was suddenly the MP for Nazis instead of Northeast Fife. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea why it did that, um, but I can absolutely assure you it is Northeast Fife. Um, so, but um, we will go back, back to you, Mark, actually. So, I mean, you've, you've brought it up. What is the actual route? for getting this through Westminster? I mean, it is, I assume, we've just got to get Labour on board because Tories aren't going to touch it ever. And, and the really optimistic thing, which you just touched on there, John, about Labour Party at the moment, is the level of left-wing grassroots support. So in the past, electoral reform, you know, in the 80s and the 90s in the Labour Party was very much uh, the sort of the modernising, top-down 
uh, part of the Labour Party. So it was, you know, the reformers, the modernists in the Labour Party who were pushing it. What we now see is actually many of the most left-wing activists. So Momentum, you know, balloted their own members, their own supporters recently on what issues they most wanted Momentum to campaign on. And electoral reform came out near top. So if we have that combination of both moderates in the Labour Party, the centrist dads, as it were, and also the Corbynistas, you know, the Momentum supporters, that gives a degree of confidence, not maybe not confidence, that's perhaps putting it too strongly. It gives a sense of opportunity that maybe this time there is a route to which, you know, which can see Labour really deliver on some warm words. Yeah, absolutely. And just on that, uh, John, you know, the APPG for electoral reform has been reconstituted and Alex Sobel from Labour is, is, is the chair of that. So there was a bit of you makes you think, oh, why is that not a Lib Dem? But actually, potentially, it's more powerful being a Labour MP in terms of showing that, you know, well, clearly there must be, there's not sufficient resistance or being told by the central party that that's not something that they can they can do um so i think there's a there's a positive there and clive lewis is is really quite um open and challenging to colleagues along the lines of you know where is the path to victory for the labor party with without a, a degree of electoral reform obviously there's a bit of a, a sort of selfish aspect to that but uh, you know frankly um I'll, I'll i'll take it so um that's good could I just add to that, uh, John? I agree entirely with what uh, Wendy's saying, but I just a word of warning. Um, I'm involved with uh, the Make Votes Matter Alliance, as Wendy is, and over the last few years, we've worked really hard to try and get the Labour campaigners on this issue to really put it into the, the minds of the local parties. And as somebody said just now, I think I think we're up to now 216 local constituency Labour parties have endorsed. But that proportion isn't represented by the number of held seats, seats. that Labour yeah. have. Yeah. It's a much lower proportion. And I'm afraid this is turkeys at Christmas again. It's much less easy, Wendy will know this only too well, to persuade a sitting MP that the system that's got them there is the wrong one. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we have to still keep a twin track approach. I think it's really important that we try and build the support for an improved system for local authorities. And here we have this huge advantage. Um, we've all three of us been involved in this quite a long time, I'm much longer in my case, of course, I'm so old. But uh, I know that it has been really difficult in the past to say to people who are not particularly interested, look, this is a really good argument because theoretically it would produce a better result for the elector. But now we can say, look, we have in different parts of the United Kingdom, let alone around the world, huge advantages in going to a system where people are better represented for the reasons that Wendy set out at the beginning. We don't have to do this theoretically anymore. There's a practical example that we can give. And that's why I think that the twin track is important. We've got to try and persuade people that we can't go on having a good system in Scotland for electing councillors, a rotten system in England. You know, that in the United Kingdom, surely the absolute bedrock of our democracy should be the same as far as the rights and opportunities and the power of the vote is concerned. And that's why I think that should be alongside the pressure that Make Votes Matter, which is concentrating on the House of Commons, we should have those both working together because eventually I, I'm convinced that now the only way in which we're going to get a sufficient majority in the House of Commons committee mm. is if there's a groundswell at the grassroots 
that's saying we're not going to put up with this ridiculously uh, uh, system that's distorted the votes of the peoples for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing for me is we've talked about a lot here about uh, sort of you know coalitions on the progressive side in relation to how we we ta we tackle this. But one of the things I always say is is the Brexit Party Reform Party. They are signatories of the Good Systems Agreement for make, Makes Votes Matter because the reality is is the Brexit Party's biggest contribution to the 2019 general election was depriving voters of the opportunity to vote for it. And reality, I suppose, you know, in hindsight, if um, UKIP or others had actually had the representation that. Frankly, their proportion of support deserved in the House of Commons, perhaps we wouldn't have ended up on the path we are in relation to the, the EU and, and other issues. So, and, and my final thought on that, on the Conservative side is, you know, we've now passed the Constituencies Bill in the House of Commons, the Boundaries Commission review is ongoing, we're remaining at the same number of 650 seats, though with the same number of electors in each place, because that's what the Conservatives are arguing, is how you make every vote count equally, is make your constituencies the same size. Um, the reality of that, given that the government have um, it's auto the automaticity was part of the bill. So basically, um, whatever the Boundary Commission decide is what will happen, is there will be a lot of Conservative MPs who are basically going to find themselves in competition for seats with colleagues. Yeah. And so um, there's a, you know, there's potentially going to be a lot of unsettled um, Conservatives in the ranks as well. And I want to point out that the, these things never, you talked about there about reform and UKIP, you know, that they did deserve representation. And what the system, the current system does, it masks underlying trends as well mm -hmm. so i can think of things like seat like burnley which obviously had been labor for a very long time but underneath that there was a level of discontent which led to the bmp at the at one point nearly becoming the official opposition mm -hmm. until the lib dems then came in took the council took the mp but like but now that's gone tory again so you think yeah. uh, it, it's a very strange mix and like i say if you'd these things don't just disappear. If people are not happy with Labour, which they are now, they've now got a vehicle for it. Okay, UKIP has maybe broke that cycle. So people that were lifelong Labour have now gone to UKIP, now thought, well, I can go UKIP. It's not a big hop for me to go to Conservative. But it, it disguises these issues rather than solves them, does first pass the post. And I think that's a real dangerous thing. And, and, and you get discontent bred from people not being listened to. Um, but and but one thing I do want to talk to you and Mark, maybe you're the first one to come in on this is that it's okay us talking about it, but if we're going to get this change, we have to have ordinary people who want not just politicos who go or who listen to our podcast. We need we need yeah. to resonate. And one of the things you know you want better politicians. You want, but maybe it's very difficult because right now you've seen all the sleaze and allegations with the Conservative Party at the moment, but people seem to have factored that in. They think, well, politicians are all like that anyway, so why should we care about it? How do they make them care about this issue? Yeah, and, and I think this is an issue on which I've probably changed my mind a fair amount over the last sort of 20 years or so, in that I used to think that electoral reform is really important. Most voters say it's not that important to them, therefore we should have it in our manifesto, but don't talk about it that much at election time, talk about things that matter more to voters win the election and then you get introduced electoral reform. The, the thing I've changed my mind on though is that, you know, if the most plausible route to electoral reform for Westminster at the moment involves a hung parliament and us really insisting on electoral reform in a hung parliament, one lesson from 2010 is what you do in a hung parliament really has to be consistent with what you were saying 
the day before in the election to get the votes for that and people have to feel that it's consistent and therefore in a sense we do have to talk about electoral reform because otherwise we're setting ourselves up for if we're talking about let's say the nhs all the time and then there's a hung parliament and then we say oh no 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 we, we, we you know we're not going to vote for this government because they're not doing what they want on electoral reform people think yeah but you were they're doing everything you said you wanted on the nhs what on earth is going on so we need to talk about it more and and i think the answer to that therefore is that we need to talk about the benefits for voters you know paul was quite right about that at the beginning but yes there's impacts on parties and there's impacts on politicians and we all as you know politicians in a party obviously get very interested in that but really this is about giving voters more power and more say and better representation paul do you anything you want to add to that about yeah I, i'd like to very strongly support what mark is saying there uh, now i'm uh, still uh, got the bruise and the the, the uh uh, the the, the, the diffi difficulties of, of 1997 still around from being involved in the discussions that went on before the Blair government came in, when Ashton and Blair, as you'll know, worked quite hard on this, and a lot of the rest of us also worked quite hard on this. And then because it wasn't up front, it was a discussion that was taking place behind the scenes on these issues. When the Jenkins Commission actually came up with proposal on PR, Labour could say, look, it wasn't really what the, gut, what the, the public voted for. And I think we've got to be more upfront. And that's why I think Mark is absolutely right about this. I think we've got to try and make sure that this is an open discussion and goes beyond the parties. Because Mark is absolutely right, because we've got to get people in all walks of life saying, look, in the 21st century, we can't go on with a political system that just does not represent what real life is like. I've just been, uh, and I referred to this in our debate yesterday at the Lord, I just reread the Dimbleby lecture in which Viscount Hailsham, of all people, a true Tory, if ever there was one, was saying, look, we're going to have to look again at proportional representation. Back in 1996, have I got, no, no, 1976, that's right, 45 years ago, because he was saying, look, you know, the, the, the public have moved on. There's no longer a simple two-party system and the political a way in which they're represented does not represent their true views. So if, a, if Helsham could say that as long ago as that, and think how much it's changed since then, we really have to try and make sure that this becomes a general discussion with people in business, people in the trades unions, people in all sorts of walks of life where they have got to a much more plural attitude to views and don't have just a sort of a bipolar approach to, to the way in which they're represented. But it's got to go beyond the parties. It won't be just enough to be doing a quiet deal in the background. And how do we sell it then, guys? I mean, you know, a lot of it, I mean, I am of the opinion that, you know, Lib Dem policy is brilliant. We're never short of policy, but actually it's how we sell it. How do we package it in a way that people buy into it? So how do we, how do we get past that? Because you, you talk about electoral reform. For those that do know what it means, You've got to then get over the people that, that also don't know what it means, but find it immensely boring when you've got other things, such as a pandemic, such as cuts to, to adult social care, to education, to policing. How do we make that prominent enough to be effective? You talked there about a pandemic, but I suppose the reality is, is potentially would the government have made better decisions if we'd had a more collaborative way of working? And certainly for myself, I sit on Scottish Affairs Committee and we have done an inquiry into you know COVID in Scotland. 
and the sort of, you know, the, the rubbing together of uh, the Scottish and, and uh, UK governments has been one of the challenges um, in terms of delivery of, um, you know, COVID support uh, over the course of the pandemic. So again, for me, it comes back to how do you demonstrate there is a positive impact on people's lives? I think as well as that, you know, we're talking, you know, I think the core bit for me of, of the elector, putting the elector at the heart of it is part of it. But I think we are having bigger, wider conversations about representation more generally. And, you know, one of the arguments that I've used previously, so I had an adjournment debate on electoral reform in the House last year, is the fact that more proportional systems produce better representatives mm. uh, people um, in those decision-making roles. So uh, women and um, people of colour. Um, I mean, you just have to look actually at the Scottish Parliament um, and the swearing in that we saw uh, this week. Now, potentially, actually, the overall numbers changed very little. We lost a seat, the SNP uh, gained one. Um, the Greens gained a couple and Labour lost a couple. So the, the overall numbers are not that different. But if you look at it, um, the first uh, woman of uh, colour uh, in the Scottish Parliament, two of them, uh, the first permanent uh, wheelchair user. Um, yesterday, the um, oaths of, were being made in Urdu, they were being made in Gaelic, they were being made in Scots, they were being made in German. And actually, that you know, that's a really, really positive thing because that is the reality of life. It doesn't fit within binary boxes. It's messy, it's complex. Um, and, um, you know, in some respects for me, first past the post almost creates like a, an idea that there are simple solutions to things and there are quite clearly not. Just add a word to that, John. I mean, I think yeah. I'm right in saying, Wendy, in your debate, there was also quite a bit of discussion about just getting better governance. Mm. And so even if it's the question of the pandemic, which is the country in the world which has been probably the most successful in dealing with this? New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, New Zealand, of course, has not only had a good system, but ha became so it became so popular that when there was an attempt to remove it, the public said, no, thanks. We're sticking mm -hmm. with a really Absolutely. good system. And not only that, Paul, but obviously the system produced, which it shouldn't, I suppose the same as Scotland, produced a majority for uh, Jacinda Ardern. But the but the whole concept of working cross-party together for best outcomes is so now ingrained in the system that despite the fact that Labour have a majority, they have worked in a coalition. Yeah, and it, 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 like I say, it improves the mindset. It forces politicians maybe to, well, shall we say, grow up and actually think actually and not be so tribal. Uh, but Mark, I mean, we, we've talked about New Zealand, obviously, um, the, the introduction into of it, of different systems into the devolved regions so how how would we go about starting that off you know what what examples can we learn from other countries well i think the really important difference now is that in england we can make a case that involves talking about scotland and wales you know paul will have done this for many decades more than me but even i can remember the times when we were talking about the virtues of stv and you could mention the sort of church of england diocese and malta and, you know, they were, they were quite nice examples to use, but frankly, not the most persuasive combo. And I think, and I know absolutely Wendy and her colleagues in Scotland have got lots of really good reasons to oppose the Scottish government. And, you know, the, the SNP have not been ruling Scotland nearly as well as they should have. But I do think you, to many people in England, you can say, look, contrast Boris Johnson and the complete shambles of the Westminster government with the way the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Senate you know, the way we see governments in each of those two bodies operate. And you know what the common factor is? 
it's about the yeah. electoral system. Yeah. Liberal Democrat policies were delivered in Scotland through an agreement with the SNP exactly. government and the budget just a few months ago because yeah. the SNP needed the support to get their budget through. Sorry, Mark, I cut across. No, no it's, that, it's a really good point because it, it reinforces that point that I think part of the way to, to win the argument is to use examples that people feel are relevant. And actually, you know, some of the people that we need to appeal to are not won over by the, oh, Malta does it. But, you know, can look at Scotland and can look at Wales and think, actually, yeah, that's that's the overall sort of government that maybe be quite good. We had that instead of Boris Johnson. Do we have to kind of accept that at the, mo at the moment? Like we've just seen the local elections. The idea that the government has had an appalling job dealing with this pandemic, which oh, I think all of us would say they have and have made serious mistakes, doesn't cut through right now. But is when the consequences of these last few years, whether that's Brexit, you know, the pandemic, whatever happens with Northern Ireland and with Scotland, that so these chickens will come home to roost and actually people think, well, actually, we, we deserve a better government than what we're getting. Do we have to be patient as well as being forceful? Is, is kind of where I want. I don't know how we go about this, Paul. Well, I think we should be realistic. I mean, I was pointing out in, in the Lords again yesterday that despite uh, Boris Johnson saying that the public couldn't give a monkey's whether he and his party have been breaking electoral law. That wasn't exactly what happened last Thursday. I mean, 36%, um, and uh, that, given the turnout, was what, about 15% mm. of the electorate actually voted but, uh, for the, the Conservatives last week. But because of the system, that isn't really where the public have ended up in terms of their representation. So. You know, I think we've got to be as careful about this because you know, hard fact, I'm afraid, doesn't obviously come through terribly often as far as the mainstream media are concerned. The social media I'm finding much more interesting in this respect. But then the trouble is we get into our own silos, don't we? And yeah. then we probably don't see what other people are saying. And I'm amazed at what people can get away with when I hear them in, in action in the Chamber of the House of Lords. Uh, but uh, th there is, I think, a, an element here which is important, which is, as I think we're all saying, this ain't going to be won very quickly by, you know, just sort of making a statement from a party political platform. It's going to be won because serious people in other walks of life are going to say, up with this, we will not put. Mm. It just doesn't fit with the real life experience of the 21st century in Britain. And in those circumstances, We've got to find people who are prepared to stand up for a better system. And by giving examples, which we've all been trying to do, I'll give another example, uh, which is very relevant, I think, is that in education, there's no doubt about it that the way in which the Welsh government had to bring in a very able Liberal Democrat AM it, to be Secretary of State for Education, or whatever the right title is, mm -hmm. Kirsty Williams, meant that there was a degree of cross-party discussion and uh, decision-making and consensus, which will probably mean that in the longer term, Welsh education has greatly improved, which I think is a real advantage to Wales. And I think there was an element of that too in the way in which they approached the pandemic, which simply isn't there with one party takes all on a minority vote, as far as England is concerned and most local authorities are concerned, and most um, mayoralties, I'm afraid, are going to be, I think, 
less able to cope if the government is, uh, is persuades us to step back to first past the post. So it's practical example. I'm not sure I'm really giving you much answer to your, to your original point, John, but I just think we really must spend as much time as we can keeping away from the theory and giving good practical examples. Yeah. I wonder for me if the other bit ties into another thing that Liberal Democrats love talking about, which is sort of federalism, devolution, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just need to look at the thumping majority that Andy Burnham eh, won last week sort of against the, 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 the Labour tide. Um, and certainly I think it was one of the things you saw in Scotland last year during the pandemic for the first time, people really having an understanding of what devolution meant for them and what they controlled. And, and when I say about Scotland, I think that was the, really the first time that the Conservative Party realised what devolution meant. So, you know, you had Boris Johnson really as the Prime Minister of England in relation to the pronouncements, the health pronouncements we made in relation to, to COVID. And for the first time, people realising how much of a day-to-day -day impact devolved administrations have. And so for me there, I think, you know, it. It, it all plays into the, the stuff that, that, that we're really interested in and frankly think that we have the, the, the right answers to. So, you know, um, increasingly for me, an 80 seat majority for one party in the House of Commons is just not representative of how people live their lives or the, the governance under which they live their lives. Yeah, and we've had a, a question from Louisa in the chat, actually, who talks about 2010 and what Lib Dems should have done. Now, obviously, one of the, the key parts of that negotiation, and I, I think Mark will probably go into it in more detail, was that, obviously, we got the referendum on AV as part of the coalition agreement, but also part of it was also to reform the House of Lords, and so the House of Lords would be then elected by a proportional system, so you'd have two chambers under two different electoral systems. Now, that fell down because the Tories reneged on, I can't remember which promise it was, I think it was, I think it was, uh, it, they didn't want the Lords reform, but still wanted the Westminster boundaries reform. And so he said, no, you can't just cherry pick what you want. And then the whole thing fell down. Am I remembering that right, Mark? Yeah, and, and I think the, well, I guess the two mistakes that we made particularly, and Paul, you know, had a ringside seat on all of this, so may well, may well correct me, but I think the two, one was, I think we underestimated the technical difficulties of getting House of Lords reform through. But there was a bit of, well, if we make it a coalition commitment, therefore the Conservatives will have to deliver on it. And we just, you know, I think we underestimated the number of different ways that could go wrong. Um, the other was this combination of both it being a referendum and it being AV. I think going straight to AV without a referendum or a referendum on STV either would have been you know a better route to go for and we can argue with you know the relative merits of both but having a a system that was a compromise that then had to be put to a national vote where neither of the other neither of the two biggest parties would be keenly for it that was and i say this with hindsight you know setting ourselves up to, to fail quite badly <coughs> it is perhaps the tiny silver lining in brexit that i think it has sufficiently discredited or maybe not discredited, it's it, it's shown us how problematic at least referendums are, that I don't think we need to assume that a electoral reform for the Commons requires another referendum. It would definitely require a democratic mandate, and that could come through, you know, through clear general election manifestos. But it is, uh, 
it is a tiny silver lining that the that all of the problems and shenanigans over the Brexit referendum, I think, has made electoral reform without a referendum a realistic prospect in a way that we would have thought it unthinkable otherwise a few years back. I'm really interested in what Paul and Wendy think about that, actually, because we actually had a, a, a kind of a debate in our local mm. party some months ago about whether it was uh, morally right to change the voting system without a referendum. And mm. some members thought, actually, it, they didn't feel it was, but actually the vast majority thought, well, my particular view is, you know, changing the voting system will do such good to the country, actually. And if you've got a clear majority of people in Parliament who have stood <coughs> in an election saying, we want to change it, then you have that mandate. Uh, but I, I wonder what you think, Paul, on that? Well, I think, frankly, if in 1997 we'd had an absolute clear commitment in both parties to move to for a proportional system of the House of Commons, then John Prescott and co, the dinosaurs, couldn't have stopped it. Mm. But look, I can't let you get past that, the Lord's Reform issue too quick, if mm. you'll forgive okay. me. Okay, no, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't so much a ringside seat, I was right in the middle of the thing. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Mark is absolutely right. That was very important from this reason, because I think it's that track record that we've got to watch carefully when it comes to this issue, because uh, people have, I think, gone away with a myth, and of course both sides have, have uh, tried to encourage the myth, that somehow the Lord's Reform Bill was defeated. It wasn't defeated. It was a compromise proposal. Uh, I worked on it for years across party with people from both the other parties. I worked with Jack Straw, and eventually, of course, in the coalition, Mick Clegg took it up and ran with it because he was given that responsibility. And that, of course, was in the end the problem, not Nick. But Ed Miliband mm -hmm. couldn't bear the thought that a Liberal Democrat minister would carry this reform through. And so the Labour Party played a silly party game that although the House of Commons voted by a huge majority for the bill in 2000, July 2012, big majorities in the Tory party, bigger majority in the Labour Party, unanimity in the Liberal Democrats and the 338 majority, the Labour Party then played silly games with Tory reactionaries to kill off the bill and prevent it going forward because they refused to agree to manage the time sensibly. And that's the only reason why we haven't got a partially, if not fully, reformed House of Lords by now with, of course, a, a proportional system of election for multi-member seats and with senators who would be accountable to the public and uh, I would have quietly retired. And so I've got a major issue with the failure of Ed Miliband and his crew for playing those silly party games back in, in, uh, in uh, 2012. But the bill is still there. If we had a genuinely progressive majority in the next House of Commons, they could pick it up and run with it. I fear that the present government is much more likely to try and completely neuter the second chamber by filling it with party hacks and uh, preventing us from being the effective house that we can be on occasion and simply asking the commons to think again. It's one of those things, Paul, you mentioned that and I just think it's one of those fork in the road kind of moments of where Britain would be right now if Ed Miliband hadn't played those games. And it's it, it actually it almost depresses me quite of where would be right now. But yeah, no, fantastic insight. That's, but do I mean, here's a question maybe for you, Wendy. Is are we thinking too grand for the reforms right now? Do we actually have to get it on a more local level, get people used to the system before we start doing the, the, the big tickets, which is, of course, the Westminster 
uh, elections. Well, it's interesting, of course, you know, we talk about the sort of ideal system STV and, and knowing that where that operates currently is local government in Scotland. And the reality is, is that's in some respects the, the part of government that has most impact on people's lives, where mm. your business get empty, mm. where your kids go to school, etc. Um, but I was just reflecting on some of the, the other points. I suppose for me, you know, one of the challenges has been that referendums don't necessarily fit with the type of parliamentary de democracy that, that we had. We obviously took pelters in 2019 in terms of our bollocks to Brexit message. But what we were saying was, if we were to win a majority as the party of government, um, we, would, we, would, we would stop Brexit from happening. And what the Conservatives were saying was, if they were the party of government, they would ensure that it, it continued. So those two systems that don't work very uh, well together are kind of uh, rubbing up against one another. So um, just to answer your question in relation to, you know, can we do these things going forward without a referendum? I think the more deliberative democracy approaches are potentially the direction of where we should be going um, next. And that's actually a way of preventing some of that, that, that rubbing up between parliamentary democracy and referendums in that a party stands with other parties, potentially a commitment to electoral reform. And then we look at a, de a deliberative democracy format in terms of what the best system for that is. That sounds to me the kind of direction that we should be going. And actually, when you look at going right back to what I said at the very start in terms of the big long term issues, that's the kind of topics that you're seeing deliberative democracy being utilised for. You know what's happened in France in relation to climate change, the um, you know the the people's um, assembly in relation to that. You know those are ways of of finding um, degrees of consensus. So that's that's sort of my my tuppenny worth in relation to that. That um, actually you know people do want to do care about what happens. Um, uh, uh, you know, day-to-day -day lives, and, and here's a, a meaningful way for them to contribute to that. I think it's it's that aspect of things being too far away from you, or what you do or see has no impact, that is actually one of the most dangerous things for for our democracy. And you know, in 2014, I didn't. You know, it was a hugely challenging time, obviously, because I was in a split household. Mm -hmm. um, but by the same token. You know, we had 86% turnout of the Scottish population in relation to that referendum. So we can't say that it wasn't really um, an exercise in democracy and that the people of Scotland didn't have their say. Now, Mark, you have written a book on how to win elections, but what do we need to change in elections to help progress this forward? You know, because there's obviously the voting system. I think no one, I think, watching this or interested in watching this believes the voting system is correct. But actually, we're seeing a lot of things, obviously, again, very topical at the moment about bringing in ID for elections and other such things. So, I mean, we will obviously fight that tooth and nail. I'm sure Wendy uh, and the rest of the MPs and Paul, obviously, in, in, in the House of Lords will be vociferously against that. But what else can we do to help improve the way elections are run in Britain? Um, oh, that's a really good question. Uh... Rather than give a really long answer, I'll pick one thing. And I think it's it's the finances around how elections operate, because the basic problem is there are two expense limits for most sorts of elections we have. One is a local candidate limit and one is a national expenditure limit. But for a variety of reasons, partly to do with technology change, partly to do with parties copying each other, etc. It's now the norm that what goes counts against your national limit gets massively concentrated in a small number of marginal seats. Mm. And the messages that go in there are very specifically tailored to those individual constituencies. 
So what we've seen is a big shift in election campaigning, essentially away from the merits of candidates and in favour of talking about national party leaders. And I mean, it's one thing that really frustrates me about the Electoral Commission is I think they do many good things and I'm normally happy to defend them against, you know, from attacks from the Tories. But they've been a bit asleep on the watch as we've had sort of quietly uh, over the last decade, a major change in the way British politics operates that has massively made our system more presidential. Because if you live in one of those marginal seats, the overwhelming majority of the campaign literature that you see, the adverts, the leaflets, the, uh, the emails, the newspapers, the direct mail, all of that, the, it's overwhelming about the national party and the national leader, so it can count against the national expenses. And the candidate is getting squeezed out. So I think if I, would, if I had to pick one other thing alongside the electoral system, it would be to rebalance the election expense rules so that actually we prioritise people talking more about the candidate and less about the party leader. Because I think that makes for a much better democracy, because in the end, it's actually the local candidate that you're voting for. It's them that you should know who's, which of these different folk is going to be the best MP for me. Or, you know, if they're the incumbent MP, what do I think of them? How do I hold them accountable? So, <laughs> election expenditure changes please yeah wendy yeah yeah I, I completely agree i'm just thinking obviously the queen's speech this week and quite clearly there's a tory rebellion uh, brewing in relation to the plan the planning bill and you know those those tories who are rebelling or are, are indicating that they're likely to are representing their constituents because they're representing seats in areas where um they'll feel that they'll be you know that that bill will will be detrimental uh, to their local communities so you know there's that kind of acceptance and I think potentially continuing down the route that uh, Mark is illustrating means that even sort of that well I suppose Brexit is a good example of that when you see MPs um, on all sides of the house who voted against or rebelled against uh, their party that they were seen as they were seen as traitors whereas actually you are elected to represent your constituents and act in the best interests of your constituents as, as well as the manifesto in which you were elected it's quite interesting. I've done quite a bit of media, obviously, over the last week with the Scottish elections. And so obviously a lot of conversation around independence referendums. And, you know, surely if, you know, the SNP win a majority or independence parties win a majority, you know, you'll support an independence referendum. And my answer to that always is, so when did that become the case that when you lose an election, you'd expect to, you know, to adopt the other party's uh, manifesto? I was elected on a pro-UK, pro-EU um, platform in 2019, and I'll act Accordingly. Yeah, it's one of those ridiculous things, isn't it? It's a, well, it's a, you lost the election. Well, it doesn't mean I'm not going to stop fighting for prison reform or education reform or all the other things that Lib Dems care about just because we, we lost that argument at that one point in history. It, otherwise, no change would ever happen. Uh, yeah. And and so no so Paul I mean other than uh, to paraphrase uh, Wendy that the, the Tories are revolting um, so uh, how what what would you see as an important change we could do in our elections? Well, I would endorse precisely what, what Mark has been talking about. Um, but just in passing, can I say that in the presence of the party's president and the chief whip, I, I just want to point out one of the advantages we haven't said is a, a, a multi-member PR system is, of course, that the elector is encouraged to look pretty hard at the individual candidates, not just at the party they're representing. And the, indeed, the candidates are more likely to want to stand out as individuals, which I think would be very healthy in a more mature 
democracy. So it makes for a more difficult life for the chief whip <laughs> and for the party's president, but I think it's an advantage of PR. Now, just to go back to the issues that I, we're currently looking at with the Queen's speech, which um, uh, uh, Wendy has referred to, uh, I was uh, gently pointing out yesterday that this idea that the biggest single problem in our electoral uh, laws is that people can go to the polling station and pretend to be somebody else is complete nonsense. There was one example in the general election in 2019 of somebody who was successfully prosecuted and convicted for an electoral uh, uh, offence of this sort. And it wasn't that he went to the polling station and pretended to be somebody else to get his vote. He went to the polling station, was told that he was not on the register, and therefore he was so indignant about this, he picked up the ballot box to try and stop everybody else voting and was convicted for that. So the idea that there's some dreadful electoral fraud going on that has to be dealt with is frankly displacement. Mm. It's just like the Republicans and Trump in the States. They invent a problem to try and distract the public from what is the real problem with our electoral system, which is, as Mark is suggesting, and again, it's like the Americans, far too much is now being paid for in terms of our political system. It's a matter of millionaires rather than millions of voters. And that is really dangerous in the long term. Against uh, the proposal they've actually put in the Queen's speech, set against that, Mr. Gove and the Cabinet Office are cheerfully trying to increase the limits on national expenditure by the parties so that they can pour mark money into target uh, seats where they think there's a good chance of winning and when frankly they will simply submerge the actual the voters views with cash and if we want to go the American Republican way frankly I think we're in big trouble but that seems to be where uh, the present government is going it's as Hailsham was saying all those years ago it's elective dictatorship they're about they think that once they've won their majority they can do what they like and that is a very, very dangerous situation for us to be drifting into. And I suppose we'll, we'll end uh, this podcast on, uh, I suppose, a question that we always like to try and answer is, what can people listening right now do? What can they do? Obviously, I would say, oh, go on, Wendy. You were right in there, oh, Wendy. I didn't even finish my sentence. Get, your, get yourself along to Cheshire and Amersham, frankly. Oh, I was going to make that point. I was So you would, you've jumped in there. And absolutely, one of the things we can do is actually whether you can, vote, uh, can operate a phone and do phone bank work. If you live up in North Sea Fife or in the darkest bits of Cornwall or wherever you might be, there are ways of helping that by-election. One thing, we, getting more Lib Dems elected is key. And we have an absolute beautiful opportunity to give the Tories a bloody nose right yeah. in their backyard. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, and, and voters that feel that they're getting taken for granted. You know, what I'm picking up from those who are saying, who, who have already been there and, I, and I'm staying down south next weekend in order to be able to do it, is that, you know, they've never had a Tory canvasser at their door. Um, and they feel taken for granted that they're paying attention to the, the red wall. And I think I remember saying that back during the debate in the constituencies bill, that in some ways, what we're telling voters is unless you're a marginal seat, your interests won't be considered. Yes. And that in itself doesn't sound right to me. And we should be saying this to friends who may be non-tribal, non-tribal Labour and Green supporters, because this is their opportunity too to show just what can be done if people are working together to get the Conservatives out. 
Yes, I, that that it's a whole other episode that about whether we can uh, whether Labour or Greens and anyone will actually do any sort of pack. But Mark, I suppose you'll echo that. Get yourself to uh, get yourself to Buckinghamshire. Help out if you can. And I will just say, I've I've booked my spot. I'm going for the postal vote. Get out the vote week. I'll be there for four. I'm doing the three hour drive from Lancashire to get there because this is so important. We need to change the narrative. That's one thing we have to. At the moment, Tories are still riding high, and we have to change that. We have to give them a bloody nose. Yeah, and 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 I, I was just going to say it's important from a Scotland perspective as well because. You know, it's important for the future of the UK because the narrative at the moment is, you know, do you want to be ruled by Boris Johnson here, here in Scotland? Unless we can see a potentially a future that doesn't have a Tory government in it, you know, I do think that that, that that narrative will continue. So, you know, I'll be there knocking doors, not just for the party, but because I believe in the future of the UK as well. Mark, finish us off. I was going to say, I, I can't really top a go canvas for the sake of your country. <laughs> there, uh, but it's absolutely true and once you finish the canvassing or delivery or phone calling and you're having a cup of tea get out your smartphone and go to the make vote matters website and sign up to back their petition and their campaign for electoral reform because i think as i think paul mentioned earlier they're doing really good work at trying to win over things like labor constituency parties to back electoral reform and in a sense it's slightly frustrating therefore that they make so much of Labour when you think, no, no, look, we're the good guys. You know, we're the people who always beat in favour of it. But strategically, it absolutely makes sense. And, and they're, doing a they're having a really good go at trying to persuade Labour. And they do run cross-party campaigns as well. So go to the Make Votes Matter website, sign up to their petition and give them a little bit of a helping hand after you've gone campaigning in general. And we've just had someone in the chat say there's a Make Vote Matter mm. Action Day on July the 17th. So there you go. So everyone, uh, sign up, get yourself involved because no one else is going to fight for this issue. Labour might come on, but we have got to put this front and centre if we're going to make people actually listen to it. But I just want to say a huge thank you to Wendy, to Paul, to Mark, to our audience here on Zoom, but also the audience listening and watching maybe a bit later on on the podcasts. But do follow everything to do with uh, the Nevermind the Bar Charts uh, podcast, which is by far the best named Lib Dem uh, podcast out there. Uh, or follow the more slightly simpler name, you know, all those years as a marketeer really helped me with the Lib Dem podcast. Um, do follow up. we're all on social media do respond to us do ask questions oh there's a gentleman's just arrived now you've come right oh no hello keith you have been here the whole time all along i've been posting on chat very good well thank you very much for being on here with us thank you very much to our panelists we really appreciate it go out get yourself and to help that by election if you possibly can i will say the hotel i've booked is only 30 pounds a night so there are several there are quite a few cheap hotels in there because they're desperate for after COVID for people to come and use their rooms. So do go have a nice weekend, go there for a week. And thank you so much for listening and watching. We'll be back with more episodes soon and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.